You're listening to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics here at Talbot School of Theology. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, an author, speaker, and apologetics professor at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Thanks so much for joining us. Our guest today is Caleb Kaldenbach, a longtime pastor, author of two terrific books, uh, one called Messy Grace, which we highly recommend, and a new one that will be out in a few months called The God of Tomorrow. So, Caleb, we're delighted to have you with us. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us for our podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I love, love Biola, love being here. It's great. You had a most unusual upbringing, maybe not, maybe not as much today, but you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, it would have been considered a very unusual upbringing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, my uh, parents were both uh, professors at the University of Missouri. They taught English, philosophy, rhetoric, um, which is why I'm a Tigers fan and Chiefs fan. But when uh, when I was two years old, they got a divorce. And uh, both of them pursued same-sex relationships, and they um, ended up uh, obviously uh, really going forward into that lifestyle. My mom was with her partner for 22 years. They moved to Kansas City and became activists while my dad was in several different relationships, but never had one monogamous one. I found out about my dad later on in life, but I knew about my mom from day one. It was just really my reality and grew up going with her to uh, gay bars and clubs and uh, activist events, pride parades, uh, you name it, we were there. And then you describe in your book, Messy Grace, that you came to faith in Christ when you were a high school student. Mm-hmm. What happened when you told your mom and her partner that you had come to faith? Well, my mother and her partner, and even my dad, had taught me uh, the importance of tolerance, of loving other people and accepting them, and um, that Christians were the enemy and that they had been oppressed by Christians. And yet, uh, when I... Uh, came to a belief in Jesus and became a Christian. And I, as a 16-year-old, had to come out as a Christian to my three gay parents. They ended up kicking me out of the house for a while. So it's interesting that the so-called victim imitated the actions of the oppressor. And they did to uh, me what they feared Christians doing to them. And I think we still see that happening today, left and right. But that's pretty much what happened. But I grabbed a Bible And I just started to read after school and during lunches and just wanted to know more about Jesus. And I found out that a relationship with Jesus gives us margin to love those who are unlovable and forgive that which is unforgivable, that if we lean into him. And eventually I was able to move back in and go back into a relationship with my parents. So where are your, uh, we'll call call them your your bio mom and dad Mm -hmm. today spiritually? Uh, they came to Christ. Uh, we, uh, our family ended up moving to Dallas for a while, preached at a church, and two weeks before we left to come back to Southern California, uh, my parents gave their lives to the Lord. They had been attending the church I was preaching at um, to be closer to our family, even though they knew what I believed about sexual identity and sexual relationships. When they came, people treated them well. People treated them like people, not like projects. We didn't withhold the truth, but I think that people there loved them so much that it became easier for them to be able to hear the gospel and really experience it. And I think that was a lesson to me that I think we underestimate how much, as Christians, 
how we treat other people impacts their view of God. So they came, they came and started attending your church mm-hmm. even before they had any interest in coming to faith? Yeah, absolutely, because they wanted to be closer to our family. And I said, you know what we believe about uh, relationships and marriage? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, come on over. Water's nice and warm. And they kept on coming, and they were treated well. And I was proud of my church. And not everybody treated them well. Some people you know, were just kind of like, what is going on? <laughs> the world is coming into the church. And I'm like, I thought that's kind of what we wanted, but <laughs> that's, that's just me. That's, that's just me. Yeah. I'd say that's, that's the objective. That's the objective. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Caleb, the narrative is that there's something unique about the Christian worldview that causes Christian parents to be intolerant towards kids who come out that are gay. And sometimes I'll say, well, what about, say, Muslim parents whose kids become Christians or Christian who have kids who become, say, secular or Mormon? Like there's changes all over. And I'll often share your story and I say, well, here's an example where this narrative is flipped. And it makes me wonder, is it uniquely Christianity or do you think there's just something about human nature that when our kids adopt a different view, we just don't handle it well? It has nothing to do with Christianity. It has everything to do with fear. In uh, human nature. To quote Yoda, Yoda told little Anakin and Phantom Menace, um, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. And so I think that my parents, when they kicked me out, they were leading from fear. When we hear Muslim families kicking out their kids who um, convert to Christianity, they're leading from fear. And I think that when we do lead from fear, I think fear allows us to do horrible things to people. I'm reading this book right now just for fun that I love called Star Wars and Philosophy. And it just, they have this whole section on fear and vices and how eventually it begins to control us when we think we control it. It says in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love casts out fear. Mm-hmm. That's a solution for Christians? Or what is it if fear so drives human beings, including many Christians, that we begin to counter that and have a better response? I think, I think the response to fear is love. And I think the only way that we can truly love someone is to lean into the person of God, to believe that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he does have a plan, to believe that things are not just random, that he is working all things out for the good of those who love him. I found that when I am really in tune in my relationship with God, and when I am really trusting in him, and I know that he's in control, and I know it's cliche, I mean, we've all gone through rough times where somebody's like, don't worry, God's got this. And those are the times when I'm just like, I know that, you know. But when we really experience it in our heart, I think that's what really frees us to love people. And I think love is um, the answer to fear, the answer to evil. I think it's the highest moral ethic. Caleb, I often hear Christians speaking about the LGBT community, kind of in an us versus them fear-based mentality. When I read Messy Grace and you talked about and you said, look, these people loved me. They cared for me. It, it really just touched my heart to hear you speaking that way. So I wonder if you could just talk about how growing up in that community has just shaped the way you think about this issue and also how you pastor. It has really shaped the way I think about people, too, that I see every person as somebody who has had different experiences in life, pains and hurts and joys and crushed dreams and fulfilled dreams and accomplishments, 
and failures, and we bring all that to the table. And I think that most people, um, they have reasons for what they believe. And most of the time, our convictions are driven by emotion. And I think our emotion is driven by our experiences and so on and so forth. And so I saw that in my mom's community. Um, I saw a lot of women who had been hurt by men in the past. And if I could tell you some of the stories, you would probably say, I would hate men too. But um, unfortunately, that hurt just kept pushing them away, pushing them away uh, until they got to the place where they are now. So um, it's really shaped the way that I think about people. And I think when we do have an us versus them mentality, it allows us to think too shallowly about people, Hmm. if that's a word. I'm not sure. I just made it one. It is now. Anyone who quotes Yoda can use shallowly as a word. There you go, shallowly. Yeah, we think too shallow about people. And, And when that happens, it allows us to categorize them, label them, and then we can just, you know, just glance right over them because we've already got them figured out instead of really thinking deeper about people. And I think that's one of the main messages of Messy Grace I wanted people to understand. That when it comes to somebody engaging in a life choice that you may not agree with, you don't have to shift your theology to come on board with them. Um, You don't need to think differently about what you believe. You do need to think deeper about the individual. And I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, in your new book, God God of Tomorrow, you make, I think, a really helpful distinction between disagreement and oppression mm-hmm. that seemed, that I think would be relevant here. Um, how did we get to a place where disagreeing with someone about their life choices constituted constitutes oppression? I think two things. One, I think entitlement gets us there in a heartbeat where we believe that we're owed things. Uh I remember, and I believe I I talk about it in that specific chapter, I was getting together with a young man who felt oppressed because his parents disagreed with his uh, choice to be in a same-sex relationship, and yet they were still allowing him to live in their house. They were paying for his clothes. They were paying for his college. They were paying for his car insurance. And I'm like, wow, that sounds like oppression to me. That's deep oppression. Sign sign me up. Yeah, I'll be oppressed. Mm. That's not oppression. I mean, come on. When you look at North Korea— you know, and you hear Dennis Rodman say, it's okay. You know, it's not that bad. Oh, come on, dude. You know, that's that, and that comes from entitlement. Because I think that people feel like they get some kind of sense of belonging and specialness and their voices are heard when they take on or they have the stolen valor of an oppressed person. And so I think that's, that's a huge, huge mistake. Um, I think entitlement is huge when it comes to people feeling like, they can use that. Also, I think that people are so tied to other identities other than that in Christ. If you disagreed, but even to this day with my mom politically, there is a part of her that writes you off as an individual because she is so she finds her identity in her politics. There are people I know who they love the Yankees, and if you talk bad about the Yankees, it will impact your relationship with that person. And I think any time we tie our identity so much to something other than Christ, we're going to fall. It's going to wear us out. It's going to alienate us. That's what I think. Okay, good. That's helpful. You know, in your ministry as a pastor, I take it you walk a pretty fine line between being inclusive mm-hmm. of people, regardless of what they wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, I know from reading your book, Messy Grace, and you know, just from being your friend, that you also have been very biblically faithful to the, to the, the scriptural teaching on marriage and sexuality. 
How, tell us about how you walk that fine line well. Well, first of all, I would say that we have to teach people that there's a difference between acceptance and approval. That acceptance is more about empathy and loving the individual for who they are within the moment, knowing you can't change them. It's more about Matthew 5.46, if you only love those who love you, what reward? It's more about Romans 12.18, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Um, approval is more about agreeing with a person's life choice. I think that we're called to accept people, but that doesn't mean we have to agree or approve of every life choice that somebody makes. So that's the first thing that I think we've got to help people to understand when it comes to walking that fine line. The other thing is, is that I think that spiritual heart surgery takes time. When the Holy Spirit really starts convicting us and working on us, it takes time. And too often, somebody who uh, may look differently than us, be in a different uh, relationship than us, vote differently, whatever you want to say, comes to our church, and we give them maybe about a good 21 days, because that's seven times three. That sounds biblical, right? And if they're not pretty much where we are after three weeks, there are some people that begin to put the pressure on them, saying, hey, you're here now, you need to change. And yet, my whole process of, of... getting to believe in Jesus was a process. While my salvation was instantaneous, it was a process, and it took time, and it took people allowing me to be with them even though I disagreed. And now my sanctification is a process until I die, right? Everything's a process except our salvation is instantaneous. And I think when we try to take something that God meant as a process and make it quick, I think we're sabotaging what God can do in someone else's life. That's a great point. I think I think we often forget that you know we've been working on these patterns for a really long time prior to coming to faith mm-hmm. or hearing what the Bible teaches on some of these things, and to expect that patterns we've been working on for a long time be overcome in a relatively short time period, I think is setting, is setting ourselves up for failure and disappointment. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Caleb, we we sat down maybe I don't know two and a half three years ago at Starbucks, and you had you were beginning to write your book, Messy Grace, and kind of under the radar, so to speak, publicly. Now you've written this book. It's done unbelievably well. I have another one coming out. You've done some speaking. So you probably have a different perspective of the church. Now that you've not only in your church, but have kind of a meta perspective, so to speak, how have people pushed back in the sense, do you think the church is still motivated by fear? Do you think the church is ready to move forward and get it right? What's your bigger sense of where the church is at? I think that there are many churches who are wanting to get it right, but they are concerned that they're going to surrender their biblical beliefs or convictions, or that if they don't hold on to some of the lines that they have within their church, that somehow somebody else will come in and they'll push the line back. So I think that's one thing I've seen. A lot of churches do want to change, but churches are afraid of changing. When I say change, I don't mean change their theology, but I mean change the way they engage society. So not their theology, but right. just their relationship. Their relationship with. and their engagement of society. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen that. I've seen a lot of churches still stick their feet in the mud and not want to move at all and not think about society differently. And they still think we can go backwards in time, you know, back to the 80s, back to the 60s or whatever. That's not going to happen. Um, and yet, I've seen something else. I've seen other churches that, and you guys have too, that have changed their their theology on things like same-sex relationships. Yet, whenever these churches do that, notice that 
they take a big hit in their attendance, in their finances, in stakeholders, and those engaging the church, to where a lot of those churches are nowhere near the size, nor do they have the influence within the community that they used to. And that, to me, has been surprising. It tells me that there's still something very, very um, powerful about holding on to truth. But we have to continue to think about our engagement of society when it comes to helping our our church members and our stakeholders to invest in people around them, no matter who they are. Caleb, I speak to a lot of students, a lot of millennials, say 22 to 35, and then this new younger generation, Gen Z, are those, say, 7 to 22. And my perception is that very few Christians know how to affirm a biblical view of marriage and know why God's view of marriage is actually good for individuals and good for society. What's your sense of where this younger generation is at? And how do we make a compelling case for marriage that it's actually God's view of marriage, biblically speaking, that sets people free? I, I, would, I, would, first say, I would first say this. I would first say that um, I think the younger generation, um, Gen Y or Gen Z, um, millennials, I think that they have a lot of spirit. I think that they have a lot of uh, sense of, wanting to make a difference in the world and seeing injustice and wanting to work on it. And I know they get the brand of being entitled, you know, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that, but uh, whenever somebody's like, oh, this generation is so entitled, I'm like, really? Who, who raised them? You know, <laughs> who is that? Because I think that every generation is entitled. I just think the entitlement lurks somewhere else. And I think this one is more upfront than ever before, but I think it's a result of how they've been raised. You know, that's the first thing I'd see. Second thing I think about is I think about how society shifts and moves, goes up and down, and their interests change. And I think that um, wherever society is right now, I think that there's always a point in which it can connect with the gospel and it can show how a relationship with Jesus uh, can make your life better and can make the world around you better as well. Like, for instance, I said that with the millennial generation and the generation coming up after them, I think that uh, injustice is huge with them. Sex trafficking, huge, right? Um, uh, people who are, who are thrown into slavery, um, huge. Th these are huge issues, and we've got to deal with these issues. But I do think that there's a way to direct that back to the gospel, and I think there's a way to direct that back to God's view of marriage. Because think about it real quick. God's view of marriage is not only the fact that it is a living picture of Christ and the church, but God's view of marriage is for protection as well. Because if, you, if we have a society where sex is just something that you can do whenever or that you can manipulate or that you can just go out and have your way with, that which God designed to protect us, to lead to procreation, and, and to communicate something very beautiful is now used to control people. Mm. It's used to hurt people. It's used to break people down. If we don't have a foundation viewpoint of what marriage is and how sexual intimacy functions within that marriage. And if you look at all these instances of slavery, trafficking, um, whatever you want to call it, I guarantee you there is the misuse of sex somewhere, and we have got to come back to down to a moral foundation of it. And I think that's in God's view of marriage. So interacting with the broader culture, what do you think is more important, to make a case for the goodness of the biblical view of marriage and sex 
or to bring people to Jesus first, and then from within the authority of Christ and the Holy Spirit, then they'll understand his view of marriage, or is it both? I think it could be both. But if I'm dealing with a broader culture, and I know there's been a ton of um, interaction with this and different viewpoints, um, it's tough for me to think when I'm dealing with somebody that doesn't accept the authority of Scripture, doesn't look at it as inspired in any way. They just think maybe it has some good moral teachings, but that's about it. If I'm just reasoning, thus saith the Lord, or this is what the Bible says in that viewpoint, I might as well be quoting the Koran or Shakespeare to them, (laughs) because they're kind of like, so what? And so I would rather help them understand um, logically how that viewpoint actually works. And then I would also rather lead them to the person of Jesus and to help them understand that that the resurrection is true. And if Mm. the resurrection happened, that that is the center point. That's the foundational aspect of our faith. And if I can get a person there, then I do believe that all of a sudden that they will grow and that Jesus will start to infiltrate the different parts of their identity. So let's say that uh, somebody comes to your church, they're same-sex attracted, um, and they're they're really committed to being faithful to Jesus. Mm-hmm. What are, what are the options biblically for them sexually? I think the only option is celibacy. Um, if we're going strictly uh, by what the Bible says, by what I believe, I believe that God designed sexual intimacy for the expression of marriage between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that is a sin, and so that means whether you're heterosexual and single or whether you're same-sex attracted and single, celibacy is the answer. Celibacy is the thing that honors God, and it might be painful, and you might feel alone, but it gives you an opportunity to walk with God in a way that other people don't. Um, so that's that's what I think when it comes to the answer of celibacy within the church. Okay. How, how do you answer people who will push back on that and say, but, but my sexual drive is something that's God-ordained? Mm-hmm. Uh, now the satisfaction of our desires is a different matter, but our you know our sex our sexuality is, is God ordained, um, and I didn't choose to be gay. Um, you've really yeah, you've, you've, you're condemning me to being without sex mm-hmm. for the rest of my life as a condition of being faithful to Jesus. Right. That sounds. I, the pushback would say that that sounds harsh. Well, how, how would you respond to that? How does that mesh with Jesus saying, my yoke is easy? Right. Well, first of all, I think that Jesus is, when Jesus said that, my yoke is easy, he was comparing himself with the Pharisees, keeping a whole bunch of legalistic rules that had no foundation in Scripture, but everything to do with um, oral tradition. Uh, so I think that's totally different. But I would, answer, I would acknowledge how they were feeling. I would say, it sounds harsh, and actually it is. It is harsh, and I'm sorry. Um, but... Living for Jesus calls for sacrifice, and all of us have to make a sacrifice in one way or another. And if I'm dealing with somebody that does believe in the authority of Scripture, the inspiration, so on and so forth, then I would ask them this question. I'd say, could you please help me understand maybe one place in the Bible where God uh, blesses a relationship other than the male-female relationship that he set up between the Old and New Testament? I mean, take it out of context if you want. Now, show me one area. Show me one instance within the Mm -hmm. Bible where God said, hey, you know what? Same-sex relationships, that's okay. Just show me, because you're trying to make an argument from silence, and that doesn't work. You can't say Jesus didn't say anything about it, so that doesn't, you know, then it doesn't matter, because now you're saying what Jesus said is more important than what Paul said. 
And I think that scripture is equally inspired. And so that's where I would go with that. I'd be like, help me understand the male-female relationship mm-hmm. then. Do, do you think that there's a, a need in our churches in, in, as a result of this to uh, more forthrightly address a theology of singleness and celibacy? Because in most churches I've ever been in, if you're not sort of married with children, you know, that's, that's the track that most people are on. And yet, you know, over 50% now of households are headed by single adults in America today. I think that if there's a need to address a theology of singleness, I think the need is more from the practical aspect. And the need is saying, hey, how do we walk alongside people that have made a difficult decision to live a celibate life out of their theological conviction? How do we walk alongside them? How do we how do we do that? Um, because many churches call to singleness, but they're not willing to walk alongside a person that's made that difficult decision to remain single out of honor for Christ. And I don't think churches know how to, and I think we need to help them know how to do that. Caleb, last quick question. What's one practical thing that listeners can do to reach out lovingly to the LGBT community? One practical thing? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say quit trying and be empathetic. And you may not be able to walk a mile in their shoes, but you definitely can walk alongside them. And everybody you see, to quote Plato or whoever said it, is carrying a difficult burden. And I think we need to recognize that in every person. And I think we need to be more empathetic. Caleb, that's great advice. Thank you for speaking up on this issue with boldness, but with compassion, with thoughtfulness, and for being willing to share your story. It's been encouraging to me, and we would certainly commend your books, Messy Grace and God of Tomorrow, to our listeners. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Listen in next time as we invite Caleb back to continue this important discussion. To learn more about us and to find more episodes, go to www.biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.